Champions League is back with a bang. We've had the first major managerial casualty of the season and there's another exciting weekend coming our way. I'm Dan Burke. This is the One Football Podcast and I'm joined today by Lewis Ambrose. Good afternoon. And making his podcast debut, it's Thomas Stockting. Thank you very much. Good morning from my side of the world. Good morning, Thomas. You are in Canada. It is, uh, it is very early in the morning there. What time is it exactly? Uh, it's not that early. It's two minutes past nine. Oh, is it? Oh, fair enough. I, I was I was playing football at eight o'clock this morning, so, uh, you know, <laughs> I, it's yeah, like to be a, an yeah. early riser. My, my phone died during the night in classic fashion and woke up with an absolute jolt thinking I'd missed this podcast this morning, but it was quite <laughs> all right. It was 7.15, so the body Lovely clock body clock working. <laughs> but have you uh, have you done your stretches? Are you ready to be thrown on for your debut? Absolutely. You know, you've got to get that good warm up down the touchline. Great stuff. Well, you've got a you've got a safe pair of hands alongside you in in Lewis Ambrose as well. So let's have a let's have a good podcast. We'll, we'll talk him. We'll talk him through the pod, won't we? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, we'll guide him through it. Two experienced heads. Yeah, so don't worry about it. <laughs> uh, yeah, we've got loads to talk about today, but just a reminder that we'd love uh, our listeners to send questions into the podcast this season. If you want to get one into us, the email address is podcast at onefootball.com. And we've got another one of those coming up later in the show. Uh, first of all, there's uh, there's only one place to start on this episode, really, and that is with the dismissal of Thomas Tuckle from Chelsea. He was uh, giving his marching orders on uh, Tuesday, uh, Wednesday, wasn't it? After after Tuesday night's one uh, 0 defeat to Dinamo Zagreb, uh, Lewis, I'll come to you first on this one. What was your uh, initial reaction to this? Were you were you shocked when you heard the news? Uh, when I heard the news, yeah, I I wasn't. Sh- I'm not shocked that Thomas Tuchel isn't Chelsea manager and the season's not over. Uh, I, I think I said to someone quite recently they obviously got battered by Leeds and they've looked not great i think for for my money anyway most of the season so far he was already moaning his head off during pre-season about the squad and what he had available to him so i i've remembered saying to a few people talking about chelsea that i didn't think thomas tuckle would last the season and definitely wouldn't be in charge there next season i'm amazed that it's come after six league games and mm. and one champions league games so a, a bit of both, I guess. Uh, very, very surprised. Even seeing the interview and the way he was speaking after Tuesday's game, it felt like a manager who was no longer fully committed or involved in that project anymore. But for then, the the statements come out the very next morning. Yeah, that definitely did surprise me. Yeah, and, and for it to, to be done so soon after the transfer window closed, you know, there's been an awful lot of reporting about Tuckle's time at Chelsea and, and the last few weeks of his tenure there and how he essentially, you know, vetoed all of the, the transfers that he did, you know, particularly the Aubameyang one was, was a personal request of his to bring that player in for them to, to get rid of him so soon after that. It seems a little strange. Thomas, if you were a Chelsea fan, and I know you're not a Chelsea fan, but if you were, would you would you be feeling pretty uneasy about the the direction they're going in under under Tom uh, Todd Bowley at the moment? I think that's an interesting point because the sort of managerial churn over the last two decades has been very commonplace at Chelsea, right? But this is a new owner. This is the, the the whole idea was it was going to be done slightly differently. It was going to be done with Bowley's personality. But it's come in and you get rid of a manager who's been there for eighteen months, taking you to what was it five finals? Like what the like just got you the Champions League after five months in charge. Um, yeah, it's not been great at the moment, but it's a it's a bold choice by Bowley. You obviously got those reports coming out now indicating that perhaps there was some transfer disagreements let's say as well um Cristiano Ronaldo being a big one that's a story that's mm. floating around at the moment credibility to be confirmed of course but 
Uh, would I be uneasy? No, honestly, I think as if I was a Chelsea fan, I've seen managers come and go so often in my lifetime. At that point, I think I'd be very much used to it. But uh, keeping more of a, a side eye on things rather than blind belief that there's just going to be a new guy that's going to come in and win us the title in 18 months for sure. Yeah, yes. I've seen a few people saying, and it's true, isn't it, really, that the uh, the irony is that probably Abramovich, who was very trigger-happy when it came to managers, even he probably wouldn't have pulled the trigger at this point. Even he might have waited a few more weeks to see see how it developed. So, yeah, I guess the timing of it was quite strange, especially as there's been reports that it, the decision was made even before the Dinamo Zagreb game, when you kind of think, well, why did they you know, put him through that, make him manage that game and then and then sack him the morning after. Mm. Uh, very strange. How do you rate his time at Chelsea overall, Lewis? Uh, Thomas mentioned there that the five finals, winning the Champions League, you know, he really kind of steadied the ship during all the, the, the Abramovich uh, unrest uh, last season. Do you think it's been a success or a failure overall? Uh, a little from column A and a little from column B. <laughs> He's, he came in and won the Champions League and that was obviously unbelievable. Um, mm. I wonder if it, it sounds, sounds a bit silly to say it out loud. I wonder if winning the Champions League held them back a little bit because mm. it was harder to turn the squad over. You, how are you getting rid of players that have won you the Champions League? And I wonder if the amount of change that he maybe would have liked didn't come because they'd won the Champions League and then it was harder to rebuild something, tear, tear something down, build it back up. It was harder to move away from that three-man defence because it had brought them so much success. So... I imagine that maybe was a bit of an issue. Whether or not it was a success or not, I think after winning the Champions League and then spending the money they spent last summer, especially bringing Lukaku in, you'd have expected them to be in that title race. And they were a lot closer to to Tottenham and Arsenal chasing them last season by the end Mm -hmm. than they were to Liverpool and City running away with it. And it looks like, you know, a few months later again now, they've gotten further back from from City at least. So, yeah, in the Cups, in the knockout competitions, I don't think you can complain at all. All those finals, obviously winning the Champions League, knocked out in in extra time in dramatic fashion in the Champions League Mm -hmm. uh, last season as well to Real Madrid. And then the league is probably a little bit disappointing, but the guy's come in and won the Champions League and, and he's gone after, what, 18 months? So... You definitely can't call it a, a failure, but maybe there was a bit of disappointment about how way things went in the league. Yeah, I remember this time, sort of twelve months ago, looking at the title race and thinking it's going to be a three-horse race. You know, Chelsea, Liverpool, and City, and and people were talking about Guardiola, Klopp, and Tuchel as the three kind of elite coaches in Europe. Basically, do you think Thomas that Tuchel is kind of uh, he's not in that group anymore, and, and perhaps never was, and perhaps never will be? Well, I think that's a very interesting point, right? He had a successful-ish spell in at Dortmund that Lewis could obviously speak to um, in a little bit more depth, but then he never managed the egos at PSG. Uh, and that was the biggest problem. That's what something Pochettino struggled with. It's something that Emery struggled with. Just the, the size and calibre of player in that squad that are given what they're given due to the background of that club really struggled there. And Chelsea felt like a great opportunity for him to come in and have less of that baggage, still have big players, still have control over the transfers. I mean, he was still... He was still sort of the mind behind a few of the moves as well. He liked, as we said, like we bring Lukaku back in. Was that him? Was that an Abramovich move? Now that's a question, I guess, that remains. But um, I think I think that already has he has proven that he can win knockout competitions. But as you say, over a thirty-eight game season, it just it takes something more in in twenty twenty two football. Yeah. 
Well, at the time of recording, it's not uh, it's not official, but it sounds very much like Chelsea are going to be appointing Graham Potter as Tuchel's successor. Uh, he's probably going to be, even be in place in time for the game against Fulham on Saturday. Lewis, I know you're a big fan of, of Graham Potter's. Is this a, a good forward-thinking appointment for, from Chelsea for you and, and do you expect him to, to do well? Yeah, I think so. And I do think it'll be interesting now. We obviously talk about Tuchel being sacked at a time when maybe even Abramovich wouldn't have sacked him. With all of the talk of unrest behind the scenes and Tuchel and, and Bowley maybe not sharing the best relationship over the course of the summer. I do wonder if this has been done now because Chelsea want a long-term appointment. The results have made it maybe a little bit easier to, to sack Thomas Tuchel. Then we're all asking, we're all obviously thinking, why wasn't it done during the transfer window? But was there, how hard was it to justify during the transfer window? Maybe now a few bad results, the dirty laundries being aired, the relationship's clearly broken down. Graham Potter, I, I, we all think of Chelsea as this like hire and fire culture. I wonder now if they want to change that, then, and I'm sure they've told Graham Potter that they want to change that, that he'll be given time to to fix things and help build a squad as well. Maybe with a sporting director coming in so that Bowley doesn't have to mm. do so much on the football side of things. And yeah, I, I mean, I think he's the best manager outside of the top clubs in the Premier League. And it'll be really, really interesting to see how he does. I mean, to have this Brighton team up in fourth place, I know it's only six games yeah. into the season, but it's already a pretty fantastic achievement. And he's done it before, taking teams into Europe over in Sweden. So I think he's a great manager. And I think Chelsea have gone not for the big name, but for the right choice. Yeah. Are you surprised at all, Thomas, that they haven't gone for a big name, that they have maybe gambled a little bit on Potter? And, and do you think it's a bit of a risk from his point of view? You know, he, he has got a good thing going on at Brighton. Well, I think that just indicates something that Lewis touched on there, that there's a potential culture change afoot, which would, you know, just from the average purist, in quotation marks, football fan point of view, I think that would be really nice to see Chelsea under Abramovich came leaps and bounds forward, won copious trophies, everything there is to win under 18 different managers over 20 years. But it'd be great to see an English manager come in and settle and implement his style. Um, We spoke about Tuchel not being able to move away from that three at the back, a kind of formation that suits Potter's style as well. So he comes in with with bits in place. I mean, the Kukurea reunion is going to be an interesting one for him, of course, as (laughs) well. Um, But do I think it's a bit of a risk? I think any manager taking such a big step up to a big club is risky, is risky. This is like, it's the classic promotion. You think you're ready for it, but am I ready for it? I'm not really going to know until I'm in the role and I'm suffering the pressures of that role and the pressures of that kind of fan base as well. And then it comes down to infrastructure behind the scenes, obviously the technical director coming in, the idea of him bringing over, I think there was something said online about him bringing over his like guru, like recruitment guru as well to try and aid in, in how Chelsea kind of bring players in now, not just bringing in big and famous names. So it's always going to be a risk, but as Lewis said, he wouldn't have come in if he wasn't sold on the idea of a project that was sustainable and long-term rather than a quick 18-month churn. And that might be an adaption period for Chelsea fans. Maybe there's no trophies in the next two years. But um, overall, I would love this for, be to, for him to be a successful stepping stone and then take over England. That, that Wouldn't that be a glorious path yeah. for an England manager? Yeah. Yep, yeah, it's going to be very interesting to see how he gets on there. Uh, let's uh, let's move on to the Champions League now because it's been a very eventful first round of fixtures in the the group stage. We'll begin with with Napoli's four one demolition of Liverpool on Wednesday night. Very uh, surprising game this one. Very. 
disappointing game from Liverpool's point of view. Uh, Lewis, I mean, what has happened to Liverpool and, and how serious a problem do you think it is? Because I, I, I've seen the way they've been playing at the start of the season. Obviously, the results have been quite mixed. Um, I, I saw them against Everton last weekend. I thought they were quite poor, but equally could have gone on to win that game. This was a really, really bad performance. You know, defensively were, were awful. I just, I don't really know how you explain it, to be honest. They won, they won 9-0 a few weeks ago as well. <laughs> and well, yeah, yeah. It's, it, yeah, it's really, really strange. I, I don't know about you, Dan. I thought um, in the in the derby on Saturday, there were like 15, 20 minutes where they looked like themselves. And mm. then Klopp made changes at weird times, I thought, and, and really took the momentum away from them. A little bit bringing on James Milner for Trent Alexander-Arnold was a weird one. Yeah. I, I think it is pretty serious. I, I think that I don't you don't watch Liverpool and see anything like a Liverpool side anymore. I think a few years ago, obviously, it was all about pressing and that intensity and making life really, really uncomfortable for the opposition. Last year and, and maybe the year before, Thiago coming in, it's turned. They've turned a lot more into a team that controls games for me. There's, I think, over the last. Five years since both of them have been in England, you've almost seen this Guardiola and Klopp football, which was so opposite as to attacking styles for a while. It's they almost play very, very similar. They've moved towards each other in terms of how they they get their teams to play. Um, but right now, you don't see that from Liverpool at all. And obviously, there's yeah. an issue with injuries, but they don't really seem to control games. They look wide open on the break in pretty much every match they play. Napoli obviously used that to full advantage uh, last night. The the defence seems all over the place, susceptible to those balls over the top. And for a time, obviously, Virgil van Dijk was the cheat code to playing that high line and, and won every single duel that he went into and, and nobody could get past him and he would sweep up any sign of danger. He's looking off the pace. The defenders next to him don't look good enough at the moment, any of them. I, I think it is pretty serious. And I don't think Liverpool have been that bad in a lot of their games. I think you look at the Fulham game and they were poor for a half, but pretty good for the other half. Crystal Palace, they came back and, and dominated, even though they'd gone down to 10 men for that yeah. second half of that game. And they were just hit on the break once or twice. So I, I don't think the early season performances were that worrying. And especially when you've lost Sadio Mane and they're trying to integrate a new striker in Darwin Nunez. But the longer this goes on, the more it's going to rock their confidence and the more teams are going to think that they can get at them. And that will be the big long, mid, long-term issue for them. Yeah. It's a little weird what's happening with Salah as well. He seems to have moved a little more out wide and just isn't been anywhere near He's not in effective. games at all, is he? Yeah, yeah. He, he's, say, he's getting very frustrated. I had something I kind of wanted to ask you, Lewis, because I mean, a lot of the rhetoric I see online and, and the stuff you sort of read is about Jurgen Klopp's style and how, as you used the word earlier, intense and and how sort of forward pressing it is and the energy that requires from players. And about after a few years, all of a sudden, players who have been running their socks off can no longer do it. Is that something you saw with Jurgen Klopp? Uh, At Dortmund, you mean? Yeah, yeah, pardon me. I, I think, I don't know if it's a problem physically, but I think maybe emotionally, like Klopp's this big, heavy emotion. I don't know if it continues to have the same impact after X number of years that obviously it did have for a long time. Mm. I think the bar's been set so high at Liverpool now, and I guess Dortmund as well, they did win a couple of titles and then get to a Champions League final. And then quite soon after that, it it fell down a little bit. And Dortmund, it was quite obvious Bayern had kicked on so much that, that Dortmund had peaked. And I wonder about that for Liverpool as well now. Even you look at this season and 
if for argument's sake you think they can't catch and, and keep up with City and be in a title race, you start to think how much harder is it to motivate players just to finish fourth when last mm. year they were a couple of goals away from a quadruple and I think you do have to worry about that a little bit and and then phys- the physical side of it I, I was with um, I was with a few friends watching the Merseyside Derby the other day one of them a Liverpool fan hello Joel um, <laughs> <laughs> um, and I just thought we were talking about Salah at one point <clears throat> excuse me and we wondered how much the emotional drain of last season, they obviously missed out on those two massive trophies right at the end of the season, but halfway through the season, he also had the disappointment losing the AFCON final and not qualifying for the World Cup. And we talk physically about how much football these players are playing this year with the World Cup in the middle of the season and with that condensed pandemic schedule the last couple of years as well. But maybe emotionally too, we don't consider enough how these guys are just exhausted. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's it's the, the last season is just yesterday, isn't it? It seems like really they've yeah. not really had much time to recover from it at all, really physically or mentally, like you say. Yeah, they they are having a lot of injury problems as well. Liverpool at the moment, you know, it's been at some stage or another they've had nine or ten first team players out. You know, they brought Arthur uh, Mello in. He's not had a chance to to really get his his, his feet under the table yet. Um, how much Thomas do you think? Is this is a problem for them in terms of injuries and lack of midfielders? I mean, James Milner, God bless him, he's been a great player for him, but he's 37 years old. He shouldn't be starting Champions League away games, really, should he? It's uh, against top tier opposition. No, I mean, I think if you're an England football fan or if you're a Liverpool football fan or any other club, whether it be Leeds or Man City, and all the teams he's played for, it's a testament to the longevity for a player to be able to keep succeeding at like this height of elite football for so long. But if I was a Liverpool fan, I'd be sick of seeing his face at this point. I mean, like, we, <laughs> we have to keep turning to him every single time, whether it be from the start or off the bench. He is like, is that is that the super sub? Is that what we've got? And then, as you say, there's... There is uh, there is a lot of youth being brought in for them from Harvey Elliott to Carvalho as well um, to sort of plug those gaps. But I mean, no one would have really guessed that Fabinho would have the the fitness issues whilst Thiago would have his fitness issues. Um, but yeah, I mean, that's always going to be an issue for any side, as you know, support a different team that are contending for the top four. And, you know, a couple of injuries in midfield can really change the dynamic of your squad. Yeah, yeah. And then we add and, uh, to the you, fact that Trent just looks exhausted. Um, yeah. He did against United You've, and he did last night. It was it was a joke. Yeah, you preempted my next question I was going to ask about him. Like, Lewis, do you think we need to have a have a serious conversation about Trent at the moment? I mean, you look at the second goal, I think it was against Napoli. Obviously, Joe Gomez has had a shocker there. He, he gets taken off at half-time, but you, you look at... Trent's position as well it's really poor I know a lot of Liverpool fans aren't too happy with the way he's played at the moment there's even been some question about his desire and his, his sort of I, I don't know passion for the game at the moment or something he seems to be playing a lot of kind of aimless long balls and, and not keeping the structure of the defence together is that becoming a big problem for Liverpool do you think? It happened a couple of times in the Napoli game but you've seen it quite a bit recently where someone goes past him and he just sort of stops like he's not chasing yeah. back mm-hmm. which I think you can forgive him and you can, especially when he's so talented on the ball, you can forgive a bit of maybe defensive weakness and not being the best right back in the world when it comes to stopping attacks and not letting a guy go past him. But to then not chase back when that is happening and and not react to possibly a rebound or a second ball or anything like that, that's when you 
definitely have concerns. I, I don't really see how Liverpool can drop him, but again, maybe mm. just another one who needs a break from from the game just for a couple of weeks and refresh his head and get himself right because he doesn't look like himself at the moment. Yeah, I, would, I wonder if Calvin Ramsey had been fit, whether Klopp might have tried Trent in midfield at some point over the past few weeks just to see what it, what it would look like really because... I guess he kind of had the, has the attributes to play there, the passing range definitely. But uh, as a right back, I mean, there's always been questions about him, hasn't there? And there was there was a bit of controversy when he got left out of the England squad last year, and it seems to have kind of been water under the bridge now. And there's an expectation it'll be in, in, in the next England squads have been working towards the World Cup. But mm. you don't know, do you? There's a, lot, a big question over his ability at the moment, and whether you would turn to him ahead of someone like Reese James, who's you know a lot more competent defensively, I think. Uh, but it was a great performance from Napoli as well. Uh, I particularly enjoyed uh, Giovanni Simeone kissing the uh, the Champions League tattoo on his arm that he, mm-hmm. he got when he was 13 years old. And he said yeah. that his dad didn't want him to get it at the time, but he went ahead and did it anyway and said that if he ever scored a goal in the Champions League, he would do it. Thomas, if your dad was, Die- was Diego Simeone and he said, don't get a tattoo, do you think you would you would get one? Absolutely not. I actually, I work for the <laughs> Atletico club here in Canada. They've got a, a sister club or I guess a, oh, yeah. a, a daughter club, you would say, uh, considering the scale. And even then sort of that Atleti DNA, which is 100% Simeone, you see it bleed over in the Spanish staff and stuff we have here. Like I wouldn't say, no, I would say I wouldn't do it if like my, my supervisor at work turned to me and said, don't get this. Never mind my dad if it was Diego Simeone. <laughs> yeah, I would uh, I would not defy that man at all. No. Uh, moving on now, Barcelona got their uh, Champions League campaign underway with uh, with a nice five one victory over Victoria Pilsen on Wednesday night. Uh, Lewis, looking at Barcelona and the, the squad that they've built there, that the performances they're putting in this season are they are they a strong contender for the Champions League for you? I don't think many people have really named them favourites yet, but I don't really see why they shouldn't be. I I think they're up there. I mean. Mm. Like you say, nobody's really talking about them, but they've. It's not just the the Pilsen game, but if you look at their league form at the moment, they're mm-hmm. brushing everybody aside. And if you even go back to last season, without the signings that they've made this summer to improve the side, they looked pretty good last season after Xavi came in for the most part. So yeah. I, I don't think there's there's any team that they'll be afraid of if you want to put it that way. Yeah, yeah, definitely, yeah. And uh, Robert Lewandowski is just looking unbelievable. He scored a, a lovely hat-trick in this game. He's, he scored a fair few goals in La Liga already. I mean, I don't want to say that 34 is old because he's actually younger than me, Robert Lewandowski, but <laughs> he looks like a very young 34-year-old, doesn't he, Thomas? He looks very sharp and lean for a man of a football player of his age, anyway. Yeah, he just looks fit. There just seems to be something about since Cristiano Ronaldo and Messi tried to show their longevity that all top goal scorers and strikers are like, well... We can do that too. And it's it's pretty much a straight shootout between him and Benzema now for the second place in the Champions League all-time scorers chart. And, you know, Lewandowski's second goal is a diving header essentially at the back post, which is a brave one with a goalkeeper and defender in the proximity. And the other two goals are strikes from the edge of the box. He's a, he's a player who can find the back of the net from anywhere. And then he flexes those biceps and he's still a bit of a tank, isn't he? <laughs> Yeah, it certainly is. It certainly is. Uh, Bayern Munich, they got a 2-0 win away at Inter to kick off their campaign. Uh, I thought it was a, a brace from Leroy Sané in this game, but I checked earlier and I think the second goal was actually given his own goal. But, uh, Such a shame, took the first that goal. second goal is nice. Yeah, well, he took the first goal very well as well. Uh, Lewis, do, do you think that he can he can get back to the, the kind of explosive form he was in before he got that knee injury, before he joined Bayern? He's, he's kind of looking a, a bit better, but he, I guess it's been kind of a little bit like that at times last season as well. 
Yeah, the last couple of seasons, you've seen glimpses of, of Leroy Sané looking like his old self. It's, it's interesting. They've moved him away from playing on the right and they've moved him away from hugging the touchline on the left like he used to do at City. And then It's better. Uh, you wondered at the start of the season when Musiala and Muller and Gnabry and Mane were playing so well how he was going to get in the team. But a couple of injuries have opened up a space and he's taken the opportunity with both hands at the moment. So he does look sharp again and sharper than he's been for a while. So I think it, it'll be nice. He's such a good player to watch when he's on top form. It'd be nice if he can sort of keep that and, and maintain that for the rest of the season. Yeah. Yeah, I was going to ask about the positional change, actually, because his, his best form of his career, you, you would say, when he was at City was when he was sort of out getting chalk on his boots on the left-hand side, really hugging the touchline, really a sort of genuine, old-fashioned type winger. And now to, to kind of move him inside a little bit, to me, seems like a little bit of a waste of his talents. But I guess if he's if he maybe has a lot lost a little bit of that explosiveness, then maybe that's the best way to get get, get the best out of him. Yeah, he seems to he seems to quite enjoy having players all around him as well instead of being on the touchline and mm. it's almost a, a just a very up and down job, isn't it? Like get the ball, yeah. beat your man, get to the byline, pull the ball back or, or cross it. I think he enjoys being a bit more involved in the game and being able I mean you saw the goal last night, that second one that you're talking about, just mm-hmm. popping the ball off and, and a couple of one twos with Kingsley Coman in I think it's it's those options and those opportunities to play a little bit more like that, a little bit freer than where he's maybe a bit more restricted under Pep Guardiola. And I, I do think it quite suits him to have those options mm. around him. He's, his decision-making looks fantastic in the position as well. So, yeah. yeah, and it's a hell of an improvement on when he joined Bayern to start with and they were playing him on the right and almost asking him to do that Arjen Robben thing of being that left-footed yeah. right winger. And that just didn't suit him at all. They moved him to the left, but then you had... Alfonso Davies kind of doing the same job as, as that sort of winger from left back, mm-hmm. whereas City obviously had left backs who would tuck into midfield and Fabian Dell for uh, Alexander Sinchenko. So I do think it suits him a little bit better with these teammates around him. And I think he gets to enjoy his football a little bit more as well. So I, I don't think you'd put him anywhere else at the minute, the way that he's playing. Yeah, fair enough. Yeah, uh, Thomas, you were covering the, the Champions League games last night. How did you find the uh, the last... 10 minutes of the Atletico Madrid Porto game. Well, as I said before as well, it's sort of parent club as well. So I got the work group chat popping off about it on the side. Oh, yeah. Um, and yeah, I can tell you for sure that's a team meeting today. The coaches are going to be showing that to the local players. Uh, that never <laughs> never say die attitude as we strive yeah. towards what is a playoff position here because everything is quintessentially North American. Uh, but what a what an ending of it. I really find it funny that Griezmann continues to be brought on after the 60th minute with the rumours in his contract. <laughs> that he plays more than an average of 30 minutes per game this season then the obligation to buy clause kicks in which could be total rumors but there is an interesting theory sort of spreading around on that (laughs) one right uh but he made a difference and what an incredible final 10 minutes i mean that's as the wildest words of Jose Mourinho, football heritage right i mean you can't ask (laughs) for more than that in a final 10 minutes of a champions league game yeah, we say final ten minutes. It was post ninety minutes. As well. uh, we, we shouldn't overlook. It was uh, it was nil nil at ninety minutes and ended up two one. And the and the the winning goal came in the eleventh uh, minute of, of added time. Do you think uh, Thomas that Griezmann has an obligation to kiss his badge clause in his uh, Atletico Madrid con- contract? That was a, a kind of interesting uh, reaction to the goal, wasn't it? Well, I think Griezmann is a is a player who really his heart is in Madrid. It is with Atletico. He obviously went off to Barcelona and it didn't work as well. Um, 
but the the reason for coming back in the relationship with Diego Simeone, if you read a lot of like the the French newspapers, they do play on that very heavily. I think um, that's that's where his heart is. That's where he's coming back to playing better and and more football. And I think he was just. He just loves it. The fans love him. And why wouldn't you love playing in front of fanatic fans that Atletico de Madrid have and and have them adore you in that way? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, Mario Hermoso scored the goal that Atletico thought was going to be the winner. Uh, and then he gave away a penalty for one of the most blatant handballs you'll ever see. And yet still went mental at the referee about it. Any idea what his protestation was about there, Lewis? I think it's in his contract that he has to test every decision made by a referee, otherwise, otherwise Simeone won't pick him. I was like, you're bang to rights, mate. What could you possibly be complaining about here? It just made no sense to me, but uh, yeah, very funny. And he, he uh, his blushes were spared in the end, uh, you might say. Uh, Club Rouge beat Leverkusen 1-0. There was a, an interesting disallowed goal for Leverkusen in this game, though. Patrick Schick having a goal disallowed uh, with... I don't know, his toenail offside. Uh, we do, of course, have the the new automated offside system in the Champions League now. What are your initial thoughts on that, Lewis? I am happy that offsides are quicker. Um, <laughs> and I think that like that shit goal looks absolutely ridiculous when you see the, the little graphic that they do. Um, <laughs> yeah, like It's nice that it doesn't take as long as it did take before, I guess. Yeah, that's that's about the best you can say about it, isn't it? Really, I mean, is he has, has he gained an advantage by his toenail being off offside, Thomas? Uh, I would like to say no. I mean, we have this argument <laughs> over margin for error, like that sort of um, the, that change in the Premier League this season, sort of give a little bit more emphasis on the attacking player. But uh, it's just it's just hard because then when do you draw the line? And then it's always going to be a millimeter more or less mm. wherever you end up putting it. So. I mean, if you say you're allowed half the foot, but if he has half the foot and another millimetre, you're going to say offside. And people are just going to argue with it anyway. So I don't know. Technology's here. It's here to stay. I think we've just got to kind of suck it up. Yeah. All I'll say about it is I do like those kind of like virtual reality graphics they've been using. It looks like the players are sort of like pressing through the void or something, like <laughs> crossing to the other side into another dimension or something. So, yeah. It looks that, very video gamey yeah. now, doesn't it? It does. It does. Yeah, yeah. Which Do apparently that's... is where it's kind of come from, isn't it? it mm. came, they've sort of used the same technology that they're using in like FIFA games to. Do you reckon that's uh, to sort of continue appealing to a younger generation and stuff? You know, make it look more like the video game. Yeah, I think it probably is. Yeah, somebody said to me the other day that VAR is is football for the video game generation. I think uh, it's a pretty accurate summary, to be honest. But uh, yeah, it's uh, it's here to stay, isn't it? So there's no point complaining about it, really. Uh, on Tuesday night, PSG got their campaign underway with a two-one victory over Juventus. Uh, what do you think about PSG this season in the Champions League, Lewis? Do you think they're possibly better equipped than they than they ever have been to win it? It's early days, but I think they look as good as they've looked and when I say that I mean for playing against elite opposition and being able to defend in games and it's tough when you've got Neymar and Messi and Mbappe obviously to find that balance Mm -hmm. and it feels like Christophe Galtier has come in and decided that those three are a front three but that means you have to play a back five behind them and think that's the right choice with that I think they can beat anyone. They can. They look like they can keep clean sheets now. I know they obviously didn't on, on Tuesday night, but they do look more solid than they've looked for a long time. And then you just let the front three and the wing backs do their thing and, and they'll score goals. So I think PSG will be will be fine. And I think you saw that even on Tuesday. They, they obviously went to 2-1, but they didn't collapse. They didn't 
throw the kitchen sink, going after a third goal. They were compact and they let the game happen and let Juve have the ball without really hurting them too much. So I think this is going to be a much more mature and rounded PSG side that we've been used to seeing. Yeah, yeah. I mean, Juventus were a good side as well, Thomas. It was always likely to be a close game, this one. What do you think of the second half points from PSG? Because it was very blistering sort of first half performance from them. Do you think maybe their their shortcomings were exposed a little bit in that second half, maybe? I think one of the biggest things that was exposed and is exposed again, and I still think it's Christophe Galtier's biggest job this season, is is Kylian Mbappe. He's sorted Neymar, Mm. he's got Messi, but he's got to deal with Kylian Mbappe. He bursts down the right wing and he has an opportunity to shoot across goal or square it quite simply to, to Neymar and he lashes a shot. It's just, he's off balance. It makes no sense. You make the game 3-0 there, like having had Neymar assist yeah. you before in the first half as well with a delicious through ball. Um, you put the game to bed at that point. So what do I make of the second half? They, I think they invited that pressure on themselves by not killing the game off and that's something that they need to change because if you want to beat the biggest teams in the biggest club competition, then you can't be doing that against Manchester City or Real Madrid or anything of the sort. You've got to finish them off. Uh, and that's something we've kind of seen from Mbappe already at the start of this season, maybe an unwillingness to to run if the ball was not coming to him. There's been a few viral videos that have gone around. Um, <laughs> and then like it was a little bit it was a little bit lazy, I think, the defending on the corner, um, allowing someone like Weston McKenney, the Canada, the um USA international who isn't the tallest chap in the world um, to get a sort of free header at the back post. That's um, someone's looking a little bit guilty there. I know Donnarumma kind of flapped at it, but um, as Lewis said, they did control the game after that. I think I think Juve looked a lot better when Paredes, Paredes um, the, the Argentine mm-hmm. came on the field in the second half. Same with McKenney as well, sort of changed that shape a little bit but uh yeah PSG if they can sort of just figure out that last little element of selfishness in the final third they're going to be absolutely devastating because the team looks already much better balanced and just in terms of connection with the fans which is hugely important especially with those PSG ultras having a French coach Louis like Christophe Galtier with the kind of personality and aura that he brings around league and football um, this is a great little combination for them at the moment and really leads them to a platform for success, I think. Yeah. Yeah, it's interesting you say that about Mbappe because there has been, you know, questions about his ego asked in recent weeks and, you know, especially like you say, that that video that was doing the rounds of him kind of like downing tools during a game a few weeks ago and yeah. throwing his toys out the pram, whatever you want to call it. I wonder if he's a little bit conscious of, you know, what Erling Haaland's doing, at, well, has been doing for several years now and is continuing to do it at City, whether we are fully into the Mbappe versus Haaland era now, whether it's going to be quite as tedious as the Messi versus Ronaldo era. What do you reckon, Lewis? Is, is this the new one? Yeah, I wish we weren't in any era. Um, <laughs> just obsessed with individuals, but... But if there is one that we're in or that we're going to be in for the next little while, then I think it is obviously those two. Yeah. Do you think they're maybe at the right clubs for that kind of level of, of like fanboy obsessiveness? I'm just thinking like, you know, PSG and City aren't the most sort of popular clubs really. I, I feel like the fact that Ronaldo and Messi were at Barcelona and Real Madrid for so long, it kind of like enabled them to build up that rivalry, whereas maybe there won't be such kind of uh, tribal uh feelings towards these two players yeah I mean there were times that we saw Messi and Ronaldo play each other like five or six times a season and obviously direct rivals in every competition they played in so that was a little bit different and I guess you won't get it on the international stage either really with with Holland playing for Norway so 
yeah, it, there's definitely a very easily imaginable alternative timeline where they were playing for Real Madrid and Barcelona right now, isn't there? And obviously that's not happened yet. Maybe it does happen. Uh, I was going to say the key word is yeah. Four or five years. <laughs> yeah, like maybe we do see it in, in a little while, uh, but obviously we're not right now. Yeah, yeah. Have we got a definitive answer on who the uh, the best the best was then, Ronaldo or Messi? Have we decided that now? <laughs> I used oh, a God. trap question. Well, I think I, think I guess me, we never will. Yeah, for me there is only uh, one answer, despite the fact that I maybe like the footballing style of the other better. That's okay. what I'll say. There we go. There we go. We'll leave Lewis. it cryptic. Don't I mean, don't answer that question, Lewis. Let's just leave it on that cryptic note. Yeah, yeah it's Lewis. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, another another two goals for Haaland. It's what twelve in seven games now, or maybe four. It's, it's a pretty ridiculous return. Uh, yeah, anyway. I, he's, I, he's, I had a look yesterday between the Champions League and the league. It's a goal every forty six minutes. He's been on the pitch. Yeah, <laughs> not bad. Not oh, bad. My days. <laughs> I mean. He, he, he does occasionally score a, a spectacular goal. You know, I can think of a couple he spanked in with his left foot from outside the box for Dortmund. But a lot of his goals are those kind of scruffy ones. You know, I think in the second goal against Sevilla the other night where it's uh, the goalkeeper saves a shot and Haaland's on hand to tap it home. The first one as well. You know, if De Bruyne is in your team, he's going to pick you out in those positions. How do you think he does that, Thomas? How do you think he finds himself in those positions so, uh, time and time again? It's just an understanding of space, isn't it? It's an ability to sort mm. of make a defender think that this is where you're going to go and then you go somewhere else. And after that, it just becomes repetitive movements. You know sort of where, you're, where your teammates going to look to put the ball. They know where you're sort of going to end up running and you just keep occupying those spaces. I mean, you know, when Gabriel just came over to Arsenal, everyone was making comments about how many goals he'd scored outside the box versus inside the box. Haaland's just showing you can be a tap-in monster. Like, it's just, it's all about understanding the space and getting that half a yard away from your defender. Also really helps that he has, like, go-go gadget telescopic legs. Uh, I feel like <laughs> they just stick out and they reach, like, an extra six feet. And it's like, man, is there anything he can't reach with his left foot? Yeah. He, he kind of, his strength surprises me a little bit as well because he's quite a sort of scrawny guy. I mean, compared to me, he probably isn't scrawny, but you know, like, <laughs> it, it, but he's not Adebayo Confenua, is he? Like, he's he's he, he seems like he, he shouldn't be that strong, really. Like, but that but, that but is the is combination eight foot that tall as well. Yeah, yeah, that's true. But that, that's the combination. He has that awareness of space and also that ability to kind of own the space. Like, you put a ball in the box and he will beat the defenders to it more often than not. And it's uh, and he doesn't. It's pretty frightening either, does he? Like, if the yeah. if the ball comes, if it doesn't reach him, then. <clears throat> Pardon me. It's never head down. Like, oh no, the boarding car. He's he's always looking to see right. Where's it bouncing? Is it going to come to me on the next one or the next one? He just doesn't stop moving. Mm. Yeah, yeah. yeah I was reading a great was... piece of analysis that sort of just said for a guy so big and so tall, it's frightening how quickly he can like lose. Like the defender can lose him. It's like you know you can't like he's eight foot tall and bright blonde hair yet you know in half a second he's somewhere where you didn't think he just pops back up like whack-a-mole <laughs> yeah yeah i just hope he stays fit because i'm really worried about what city might sort of drop off quite a lot if he uh, if he does get injured you but, got uh, alvarez that's true yeah i don't think he's quite on that ke- that's that same level yet but um yeah casano so, came out and said that he thought he was a better footballer than erling Haaland. Did he? Well, yeah. There we go. You've heard it here first. He would. He would know better than me, I suppose. Yeah, yeah. 
Yeah, elsewhere in City's group are Borussia Dortmund and Copenhagen. Dortmund winning 3-0 in that one. Uh, what have you made of Dortmund's starts the season, Lewis? Are they performing well under Edin Terzic? And um, how do you think they did in this game in particular? They've looked a lot better the last few games since Sally Ozchan has, has come in. He signed for about five million thanks to a relief clause from Cologne in the in the summer. I think the first few games are all very tight and not particularly convincing. Uh, held on against Leverkusen, got very lucky to come back and win against Freiburg, and then were very lucky to be tuning up against Werder Bremen and threw that game away in the space of about six minutes, starting from the 89th minute. And you were really worried because you watched that game thinking they weren't good, even though they'd won the previous two. They hadn't looked good. They hadn't been impressive. The last few games, as I say, since Uzchan's come in and, and is being partnered with Jude Bellingham have looked a lot better. And Dortmund are starting to look like they're controlling games. They're starting to look more solid defensively and you know have the ability, obviously, always to eke out a goal or two. But now also, I mean, especially compared to last season, a bit more of an ability to grind a game out and not give much up to the opposition. So it's slowly getting there. It won't be enough to to be anywhere near Bayern, I don't think, by the end of the season. But it's looking like an improvement on last season at the minute. Yeah. Do you fancy them? Are you feeling pretty confident about the chance of getting out of the group now? Because, I mean, I, I, I thought Sevilla would be... Uh, have a decent run for that second spot. Uh, they've made the worst start to the season for 41 years, I believe it is. And the, I thought they were really, really poor against City. Do you think that's that's kind of Dortmund's place to lose now? Yeah, I guess when you put it like that, then then it is Dortmund's place to lose. Well, 41 yeah. years. Uh, yeah, I no think pressure. it's obviously... Yeah, right. <laughs> you look at that group and it is obviously Dortmund and Sevilla fighting for second, really. Realistically, Dortmund won't get anything in Manchester and, and would have to play really, really well to get anything against City in Dortmund as well. So it'll be, you know, the, the games against Sevilla, can they go to Sevilla and and not lose? Will they win in Copenhagen? I mean, if they do both of those things, then, then they're as good as through. So, yeah, it'll be interesting. Obviously, the heavy defeat for, for Sevilla gives you the hope, uh, even if it was against Man City, who can do that to anybody. But looking, as you say, the, the start of the season, they've had La Liga as well. You'd have to say Dortmund are the favourites now. Yeah, for sure, for sure. Uh, Real Madrid, they began their campaign with a 3-0 defeat, uh, 3-0 win, sorry, at Celtic. Uh, ah, some, including myself, tipped Real Madrid to have a bit of a tough evening at Parkhead with the, the, the 12th man of, of Celtic roaring them on. They kind of breezed through this one uh, in the end, Thomas, that I think Celtic gave a good account of themselves for the first sort of 50, 60 minutes, but it was uh, it was consummate professionalism from from Real Madrid. Does, this, does that kind of show just what a kind of unflustered experience European side they are? Absolutely. And amongst the young players as well, you know, we were having the Haaland and Mbappe conversation and they probably are a little bit above, but I think Vincinius Jr. is kind of like trying yeah. to elbow his way into that conversation as well. He's becoming more mature. He's finding the back of the net more often. And when Karim Benzema goes off injured, he literally is the one that carries this Real Madrid team on his back a little bit in the front third. So, um, yeah, I mean, Celtic gave a really good account of themselves. As you say, they remained stubborn and a bit bullish throughout the first period. But uh, the second half, the second half, the quality just shone through. They just sort of chipped away at them, right? And blast from the past with even Hazard coming in. Yeah. Yeah, is that is that a... Uh, a, a are we going to see a bit of an unexpected resurgence from, from Hazard, do you think, Thomas? I would love to see a little bit of a resurgence from Hazard, especially in the next couple of weeks with the World Cup coming up. It was, it's just not worked for him. And he came out during the summer during that um, Champions League parade and said that he was sorry to the Real Madrid fans and that uh, they're going to see his, his true self this season. 
Um, and that w- I think that would be great. I mean, regardless of what you think about Chelsea as a football club, regardless of what you think about Eden Hazard as a footballer, he is he is undeniably a very, very good footballer. He's an incredible talent. And it would be such a shame to to see him make that move to Real Madrid and for it to not work out in the slightest. You know, Gareth Bale had his moment in the sun um, before it dipped off. And maybe we have a sort of reverse thing with Hazard where it doesn't start off too well, but then he gets a good 12 to 18 months. I would love to see that because what a great player. Yeah, yeah. Fitness permitting, I think, with him at all times, isn't it really? But yeah. Absolutely. As long as he's no longer a few pounds overweight as it was. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And uh, and perhaps one of the, the big shock results of the, the round of fixtures was RB Leipzig's 4-1 defeat at home to Shakhtar Donetsk. That result cost Domenico Tedesco his job. I was <laughs> Danny actually called that on, on the podcast on, on Monday that we did, Lewis, that he said Tedesco was in a bit of hot water. I was a bit mm. surprised to hear that at the time. Do you think it had been coming, this, this sacking? <laughs> I saw someone the other day refer, how can you do this? He's your most successful ever manager. Um, well, <laughs> no comment um yeah yeah i i thought leipzig were not particularly good especially when you think that they build this entire brand of how they play football and in a point in tedesco last season they went away from that completely so i think when you do that the results have to be there so there was no longer this crazy energy four two 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 or four two four or whatever you want to call it um all out attack all of the meat on the barbecue type football and it was patient and dull death by a thousand passes the center backs just going back and forth to each other and then at some point Nkunku would score their first chance of the game and then they would just sit back and not let a goal in I think as long as you're doing that and you're winning you're going to be fine as soon as you'd stop winning and it doesn't really fit in with the the ethos at the club that existed beforehand then you're going to be in trouble and they stopped winning pretty quickly. They obviously did win the cup last season and, and mm. got up to fourth right at the end of the, the Bundesliga season. They nearly threw it away. But then the start of this season has been really poor. You know, defeat to, to Union Berlin, uh, draw with Stuttgart, draw with Cologne. And then the last two games, they've been battered by by Eintracht mm. Frankfurt at the weekend and now by Shakhtar Donetsk as well. So, yeah, I think the writing was on the wall a little bit. Tedesco's only got himself to blame. He turned around and said that he, in the summer when the club tried to open talks, said that he didn't want a new contract yet and that he <laughs> preferred to wait and talk about it during the World Cup, uh, which obviously has made it a hell of a lot easier for them to get rid of him now yeah. instead of signing it off the back of a cup win. He said that after a good first season at Schalke, he signed a new contract and then the second season went badly and he didn't want that to happen again. So he preferred to get through the first half of the season. And <laughs> maybe, maybe you're just bad at, starting a season mate um <laughs> so yeah Our second year dip. right yeah like not not a big surprise for me and i think you know they've got a new sporting director coming in in max erbel and it wouldn't surprise me if he's given this the seal of approval as well before yeah. he, he arrives in december what about him going there? Because he was a very respected figure during his time at Gladbach, if I'm not mistaken. And, and Arvid Leipzig, let's say, are not a very respected club in Germany. Is that, how has that gone down? Yeah, I mean, he was approached during his time at Gladbach by Dortmund right. and by Bayern and said no and kept signing new contracts at, at Gladbach. So it's he left there in a bit of a weird situation last year mental health, personal issues and uh, not being treated very well by the club, a club that he played for as well by the end of it. So Mm. I guess after leaving Gladbach, at some point at this elite level of competition, the question isn't 
whether or not you agree with whether or not RB Leipzig should exist or how <laughs> they how they function. But these guys want jobs at the top, and it, it is one of those in German football. Yeah, yeah, and uh, and Marco Rosso is the new man who's been appointed today. Do you think he's a, a good appointment for them? Yeah, I think he is. He he had a weird squad and a, a bad year at Dortmund last season, but still finished in the Champions League places. Uh, he's worked with Erbel before as well. I don't think it's a surprise at all that he's coming in with Erbel arriving at the club. We appointed him at Borussia Mönchengladbach. Rosa got a lot of flack from the, the Gladbach fans when he announced that he was going to go to Dortmund at the end of the previous season. And Erbel kind of protected him from a lot of that criticism. So they obviously have a, a maintained a good relationship as well. And I mean, Rosa was the manager of RB Salzburg, which usually is the proving ground. Instead of going to, to Leipzig, where Julian Nagelsmann was at the time, he went to Gladbach, got them into the Champions League. So he's uh, last year at Dortmund didn't go great. and they, they still scored more goals than they've ever scored in a Bundesliga season. And I know if you're trying to point to Erling Haaland, but he only played about two-thirds of the games, I think. Yeah. So uh, Dortmund conceded the most goals they've conceded in a season, I think, <laughs> all but one season since 1997. But they also scored the most goals oh. they've ever scored in a Bundesliga season, more than any Klopp team ever scored uh, in 34 games. So there was still plenty to write home about. And it was a weird squad that didn't really fit together in any particular style of play. I think Rosa will, will fit well at, Gladbach, uh, at Leipzig. sorry, And yeah. yeah, I think he'll fit a hell of a lot better than Dominico Tedesco has. Yeah, yeah. Before we move on from the Champions League now, we have had a, a question in from a listener. Uh, Katrina has been on the emails and she asks, does the current format of the Champions League need to be fixed? And if so, how would you do it? Now, I was thinking about this question, perhaps with my uh, my Man City hat a little bit too much on, because <laughs> I do find the group stage of the Champions League a bit of a slog sometimes. But I wonder if that's because it's become a bit of a formality for City. And then, you know, we, we usually breathe through the group stages get to the knockout stages, get to the quarterfinal or semi-final and get knocked out. And that's why for City fans, the Champions League is quite a hard composition to love. For that reason, I've often wondered whether it would be better if the Champions League was more of a kind of straight knockout, even if it was seeded straight from the beginning. You know, you had, you had a bit of jeopardy on the games because even if you lose the first couple of games of the group stage, it's not really a disaster, is it? You can always pull it back from there. So any theories, Thomas, on, on how you would improve it? Uh, that's a really good question because I'd never really contemplated yeah, and uh, the idea you just suggested, almost like an FA Cup style Champions League, yeah. kind of sounds pretty interesting. I mean, I'm I'm not a I'm not too much of a revert from the norm kind of guy working here in North America. It's all about trying to fundamentally teach the the fundamentals and and the basics of football and sort of like how how to do it and how it works back home. So um, so no, I, I do quite like that idea of sort of level leveling the playing field so that. A team like Shakhtar, who, by the way, before we move on from them, have to give a huge shout out to what they've managed to do against RB yeah. Leipzig with uh, everything going on in, in Ukraine, obviously. But um, I like the idea that sort of levels the playing field, cause a, cause a very early upset. I quite like that idea, Dan. Yeah. I'm, I'm just looking at some of the teams that have played this week and, it, oh, yeah, fully a, a knockout, like it used to be, a knockout and a fully open draw. It wouldn't, mm. I think it would be great. To, it, it gives the chance for, you know, I'm trying to think Porto, Copenhagen, Sevilla, Shakhtar Donetsk have all played this week, Celtic and Rangers. Imagine if all those teams could get all the way to like a quarterfinal just by beating each other and not having yeah. to come up against Real Madrid or Man City. And, and then who knows guess, by that stage of the competition, anyone mm, can win it. 
I guess the flip side to that, though, is how much money those clubs make in terms of hosting three games with big teams coming to town as well. I mean, if it's a straight knockout and you're out in the first round, um, it could be a little bit hard for them. Well, it's worth remembering that the Champions League is just one big gravy train, isn't it, basically, for, for all of the, especially the big clubs. You know, the big clubs mm-hmm. need to have a guaranteed number of games so they can make money from them. And, you know, imagine if Liverpool had been knocked out last night, like they would not be happy about that at all. Like not just because they've be been funny, knocked out, but because it? of the financial implications. Yeah. Well, yeah, I think it would, yeah. But uh, I, do, I do actually quite like the change that already came into place, the sort of cancelling of the away goals. I thought it made the knockout mm. rounds a lot spicier. It meant that yeah. no team went to a city and remained cagey to like not consider like not cons- didn't really put themselves out you know i don't know it felt like it balanced the the uh the playing field a little bit more and allowed for um a better two-leg tie than it had in previous years yeah totally agreed and and taking my man city hat off i actually thought the champions league group stage was really good this week and there was some great games mm-hmm. so uh maybe maybe it doesn't need fixing i mean they're going to break it even more next year is it next year when they bring in even more teams uh, to the champions I think, league I think it is yeah yeah, so that's something to look forward to, isn't it? Let's uh, let's move on and have a little chat about the Europa League now because that gets underway tonight. Uh, you are both Arsenal supporters. Arsenal are in the Europa League, and you know it's not the one you wanted to be in, but you're here now. Uh, how do you think Arsenal will approach it this season, Thomas? Do you think they're gonna uh, try and win it, or is it going to be a bit of a, a, a distraction and, and just play the kids or whatever? I like that you came to me first, considering when it comes to Arsenal, you get basically emotional uh, analysis, whereas (laughs) Lewis will give you very practical analysis. Um, uh, How they're going to approach it, uh, honestly, I think they kind of have to play some bigger players. It can't be just a rotational 11, especially with the injuries that we've we've suffered now. We know the squad that's travelled over, some of the big players have come over. And this season, you know, if if we were... the, The whole idea was... If we'd made Champions League last year, which I know wasn't like the ultimate goal for the squad last year, but if we had, the first 11 would be playing three games a week. So, you know, in the build up to this, is it right now to just throw in a different 11 and hope for the best there and maybe put ourselves on the back foot? You know, Arteta's installing this this sort of winning culture in the team. And I don't think it's the right time now to just rotate everything out. I think the Europa League is a great opportunity for a trophy. It's a great opportunity for a European trophy. And with how competitive the Premier League is, we know the the quality of Manchester City. We know the quality of Liverpool may have dipped a little bit, but they're going to be there and thereabouts. Ten Hag's Manchester United are a little up and down. You've got Chelsea that are going to be in the mix as well, especially with Potter coming in. And then you've got Antonio Conte's Tottenham as well, right? So look, that that top six, it's like, well, top four is a minimum requirement for Arsenal. Well, I guess, but you can only play how you play. You've got five other teams competing. Six doesn't go into four. Um, so I think it's a fantastic opportunity to to sort of keep that winning mentality going. And I think it's a great opportunity to look for a trophy. But there will I, I expect there to be some rotation early on because you can't knacker everyone out. But I don't know. I think the squad's a little bit thin to be able to just treat it as a play the kids. Yeah. What do you reckon, Lewis? Yeah, I, I, like personally, I'm desperate to win the Europa League this season. Um, I, I think Arsenal in the group stage, like you said, down with City in the Champions League, you can afford to slip up once or twice and it doesn't matter too much. And I think after such a great start to the Premier League season, there has to be an eye on rotation and, and keeping key players fit as well. You, you, Arsenal fans will go mad, and I think rightly so, if Bukayo Saka played 90 minutes mm-hmm. against 
FC Zurich and and Bodo Glimt and then missed a month of the Premier League season as a result or or Gabriel Jesus or any of those other crucial players. So it is a bit of a balancing act. The group stage you can afford because you've got those chances to make up for it, to rotate a little bit more and sure, maybe you, you take up one bad result on the chin and it's mm. not a disaster. And then I think in the knockout rounds, we'll see Arsenal put out a, a full team mm. and and really take this competition incredibly seriously. I think you've even seen Mikel Arteta the last couple of seasons in the League Cup play a, a team that's a lot more serious than Arsene Wenger, even in the early rounds, than Arsene Wenger ever played in a League Cup semi-final. So I think there's definitely the idea, the mentality, that winning mentality that Thomas was talking about, that every trophy counts and every trophy is a trophy that needs to be taken seriously. And one that comes with the prize of firstly a European trophy and, and secondly a place, a guaranteed place in the Champions League next season. Mm. Arsenal have got to go for it completely. And, you know, looking around, you don't know who's going to drop out of the Champions League in third place, obviously. Yeah. Um but I don't think yeah. there's anybody in the Europa League right now that Arsenal should be afraid of. I would probably consider us the favourites. Mm. Yeah, that's just when you look well, at Dortmund and Liverpool and hope they don't drop down. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, uh, you might have to play against uh, Manchester United again at some point. They're also in the competition. I guess their approach a bit would be would be broadly similar. How did you both feel about uh, Arsenal's performance at Old Trafford last weekend? First defeat of the season. I personally thought Arsenal played really well for about an hour of the game and then not so well for the last half an hour. I actually thought they, I was kind of surprised by how much control of the game they had. But um, was it uh, a encouraging or a bit of a worry the way it, it panned out in the end? personally I'm with you I thought like I came it's hard to it's obviously hard to lose and lose a big game and it's never nice but I was not worried at all after the game I thought if Arsenal go to Old Trafford and play like that nine times out of ten they'll probably win and and definitely not lose Mm -hmm. so being hit on the break was not nice and, and a bit of a worry we've seen that United can do that to anyone though and I thought that Arsenal were by far the better team and the team that had control of the game generally. So having as long as that winning run was going on and people were always going to say, oh, but they've not played anybody. And now they have played someone at the top end of the table when they've lost that game. But the performance to me gives a lot of reasons for optimism rather than anything to be too worried about. Yeah. Do you agree with that, Thomas? Yeah, I completely agree. I mean, I left the game, what I left watching the game feeling upbeat and positive about what Arsenal could bring this season. Obviously, there were some moments of potential immaturity where we could have calmed things down a little bit and and slowed it down. We got caught on the break, as Lewis said, which I think is a nice little uh, taster of what Tottenham are going to try and do to us in the North London derby in a few weeks' time as well. So learn from that, keep moving forward. But at the end of the day, I'm enjoying watching Arsenal. They make me feel good about their performances. And it's not like I walked away from that defeat feeling overly frustrated at all. I just felt... There's, there's a bright future to come. Like We talk about Manchester City. They play their way. Sometimes they draw with Aston Villa and sometimes they thrash them. You know, it's like, mm. you know, nine times out of ten, the way you play is going to is going to get you the result you need and you just kind of have to have faith in that. Yeah, you're on the right track, aren't you? It feels more like that is the case than it has been at any time under Arteta's tenure so far, I, I, would, I would say, as an outsider. Uh, we've got uh, just a little bit of time left, so let's just have a quick look ahead to the weekend because we've got a big game in the Premier League on Saturday with Man City hosting Tottenham. Uh, again, you're both Arsenal fans, and I'm sure you won't like answering this question too much, but <laughs> I'm wondering if, if we should consider Spurs serious title contenders this season. They're in pretty good form. Richarlison getting his first two goals for the club against Marseille on Wednesday. Are they uh, are they a worry for you? 
Nah, they're rubbish, no. aren't they? No, <laughs> absolutely not. <laughs> uh, but they do always beat Man City, so that's three points. That's true, yeah. They're a worry for me this weekend, I'll tell you that. Yeah, yeah. I, mean, I, wish, I, I wish I had your confidence there. I don't know, just, to, uh, just a quick one on like the title contender element of it. I think, honestly, no. Manchester City are the title contender and Liverpool or someone if they can keep pace. But Man City are the title contender. I think Tottenham's ability to play Conte ball is effective up to a point. Um, obviously, his style has sort of remained similar throughout the last decade, whereas other styles of football in the Premier League are trying to move on from that. Um, but he's going to stay true to his roots and they're going to be a force and they're really going to be pushing towards that top four. But title, that's a stretch. Yeah, yeah, I think you're probably right, to be honest. But uh, I just won't let myself believe that City got to run, run away with it just yet. Yeah, well, you will lose, <laughs> so that'll make you feel a little bit more humble. Yeah, that's true, that's true, yeah, yeah. And there's also a pretty big game in the Bundesliga with uh, with Dortmund taking on Leipzig. Is uh, is Marco Rosa going to come back to haunt Dortmund, do you think, Lewis? It's a classic, isn't it? The <laughs> former coach turns up and in his first game is is against you. Um, I, don't, I don't know. I, obviously, you never know how a team's going to react to a new manager coming in after a couple of really bad games. You'd have to say Dortmund are probably the favourites. Uh, Rosa doesn't have a very good record against them either. But uh, yeah, I mean, this one's a toss of a coin, I think. And we'll we'll see come the weekend. It's nice as long as we never get Bundesliga title races. It's nice <laughs> when Bayern can be below Dortmund for at least as long as possible. And <laughs> they are right now having drawn their last couple of games. So if Dortmund want to maintain that uh, heading into the following weekend or into the international break, sorry, so into October, uh, then they're going to have to win. Yeah. And we've also got the Women's Super League season kicking off uh, this season. That's uh, very exciting. Chelsea have won the title three years in a row now, I think it is. Uh, do you reckon Arsenal can uh, can end their reign of terror or, or anyone else this season, Lewis? Uh, anyone else I'd say no. Manchester City have lost half their team, uh, mm. which Man United have still the last few years they've been on the outskirts they're finishing fourth and that sort of big three they've not managed to crack into it yet so I think they might this year but to jump all the way into title contention feels like a little bit of a stretch I think like last season I think it's Arsenal and Chelsea and and barring any serious absences and injuries for either side it'll go all the way because they're just two really really good football teams yeah, let's hope so. What did you make, uh, Thomas, of that Kira Walsh transfer to Barcelona this week? Uh, a world record fee for a women's player. Was it 400,000 in the end? Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, yeah, that's the number we saw floating around anyway. And like, I just think it's fantastic. We're talking about big transfers that are making big headlines in the news, following up from the major success of the Euros last summer. And obviously, Kira Walsh got player of the match in the final as well, didn't she? So, um yeah, absolutely great to get the extra publicity and the extra eye on it. And a world record transfer just shows there's potentially a little bit more money coming into the game now as well, which which obviously, as we know from the path of the men's game in the last three decades, that you start seeing more world record transfers, there's more money coming in, there's more eyes on the game, and it's just going to keep growing, which is fantastic. Yeah, it's just mad the contrast between the the men's and the women's game, isn't it? The 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 world record fee in, in the women's game is four hundred k, and the, the the world record in the the men's game is two hundred million. And in the men's game, you've got Man City, you know, buying all the talent, hoovering up all the everyone else's best players. And and in the women's game, it's quite the opposite. All all their best players are uh, jumping Man- ship to other teams. 
400k is probably what Man City's top owner owns in a week, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, uh, along those probably lines, is, yeah. I think. Yeah, and there were there was even a report in Spain that Kira Walsh wanted to move so badly, Barcelona wouldn't fork out the whole 400,000 themselves, and she's contributed something towards it. Oh, really? Well, yeah. Oh, which, well, um, yeah, I, which yeah, I mean, yeah, but at the same time, it makes you feel a little bit sick when you think of the amount of money Barcelona have done on everything. Else it does. They've done on the men's yeah. side this summer that they wouldn't maybe spare. I don't know, an extra twenty grand or whatever it took. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, but good luck to her. She's going to slot very nicely into that team, isn't she? Yeah, they had to deploy yeah, another and, and with, her in there. With with uh, Alexia Pateas out for the season, uh, more than likely as well. There's no worries that she'll go over there and, and have to fight for playing time. I think she'll be straight into the side. Yeah. Well, that's all we've got time for on this episode of the One Football Podcast. Thanks to Lewis and Thomas for joining me and to everyone for listening. We'll be back on Monday when Matt Froelich will be making his long-awaited return from holiday. If you want to get a question into us in the meantime, the email address is podcast at onefootball.com. Enjoy the weekend and we'll catch you next time.